Now, the kingdoms that we spoke about in previous broadcasts <clears throat> were, in, were designed to be in conflict. Everything representing the authority and rule of Christ on the earth to support and to display the glory of God's nature in exact representation in His people from the beginning with Adam and Eve began to be opposed. With the fall of Adam, authority that God had given to Adam was conceded to Satan, which is to say God never has ever given nor ratified the authority of Satan to establish a culture that opposes God in the earth. If God had done so, then God would permit an opposition to rule and that opposition would be legitimate. But God never has permitted or granted the authority to this kingdom to exist. Its entire foundation, by contrast, to the kingdom of God which is established by divine intentionality before the foundations of the earth. The foundation of this opposing kingdom referred to as the kingdom of darkness is on a basis of authority gained through deception and subterfuge, taking advantage of man's weakness and ignorance of the conflict that, is, that rages beyond his world in the invisible world and originated in heaven, but spilled over onto the earth. The culture that resulted from Adam's relinquishment of his authority that God gave him to have dominion over the earth, the culture that resulted was a culture that became perverted. In principal part, we can see the perversion of this culture early, in, uh, even in the narrative in Genesis 2 and following. Adam immediately hid from God, which tells us that when you give in to Satan, when you have conceded your authority and when you have adopted any measure of the mindset of Satan, you begin to see God as your enemy as opposed to the very sustainer of your being and the one for whose uh, existence and for whose glory you actually exist. The glory of God is manifested in man when man exhibits the nature and character of God, when man, like God, loves like God loves, which is the great commandment that Jesus re, uh, reinitiated, republished, when He said, love one another as I have loved you. It was the original commandment and the original intent. But when man conceded that and it was lost to man, then this, this kingdom of enmity foundationed upon a, 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 a theft of authority accomplished by the subterfuge 
of deception was perpetrated. This entire opposition to God and to the things of God are based on no more substantial a foundation than that. That's why it will be shaken. But 6,000 years later, it's fully blown, fully grown, and, and exhibits itself in the earth in a most grotesque fashion. Let me, let me show you something of how it looks in the earth in our time. Paul was writing to Timothy on this matter and he told him that in the last days perilous times will come. And let me read it to you. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 2 at, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. This is the current state of the culture that was developed and that evolved out of the subterfuge that I'm speaking about. Paul to Timothy, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll even have a form of godliness but denying its power. From such turn away. In the book of Galatians, a similar passage would delineate what is called the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, lying, and so on and so forth. Beginning with the separation from God, the culture of a kingdom was forged in darkness, in the absence of God's restraint and away from the light and glory of God, in which light and glory He meant for man to walk. When He saves man, it is to take them back to that. But man unsaved has continued generation after generation after generation since the fall of man to further decline this concept of entropy in in, uh, creation sees man descend practically into the abyss of dissipation, of 
the lack of integrity, the lack of honor, everything that represents God, man has pushed away from. Romans 1 describes this as choosing not to retain God in their knowledge. But this opposition, although it's practiced on an individual level, is not just an ad hoc occurrence, it's formulated into a kingdom called the kingdom of darkness. That formulation began almost instantaneously, commensurate with the fall of man, beginning with the mindsets, these are the pillars of this this culture, the mindset that God is the enemy of man and man can depend on no one but himself. That's what is implicit in the two things that Adam did. When he clothed, when he hid from God, therefore, ergo, God is the enemy of man, and B, or the other thing is, when he clothed himself, man cannot depend on anyone but himself. This kingdom of darkness continues to evolve in increasingly sophisticated forms, which we'll talk about in terms of the systems of this kingdom, from that point on and unto this day. And it has produced this level of debauchery among humankind. It is unrelenting in both its evolution and its, uh, its opposition to God. It is therefore subject to the arrest and judgment of God on the appointed day. But now the history of the scriptures is how this kingdom continued to crop up in more and more definitive form throughout history. Now, it has always existed from the days of Adam onward it has always existed in type and shadow. But there was a prophetic point, a point in time at which it was specifically identified and part of its evolution was both mapped and presented. And this is in a prophetic vision given to Daniel, first in the book of Daniel chapter 2, and then in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Now, in the book of Daniel chapter 2, the precursor, kingdoms that would would be presented as predatory uh, were presented, and then they were referred again, referred to again in greater detail in Daniel 7. And in both instances, the kingdom of God, which which it, the kingdom of darkness, opposes, is also presented, and in both instances, the kingdom is presented victoriously. The kingdom of God is presented victoriously. So in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. In this dream, he saw a great image with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron 
and feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. The interpretation was, Daniel said, You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are this head of gold, and there will come after you a kingdom that is inferior to yours, like silver is less valuable than gold. And then after that will come a kingdom typified by brass. And then after that will come one, a fourth kingdom, with legs of iron and feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. And he identified these kingdoms as coming in quick succession after Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom. The kingdom that came immediately after was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, led by Darius, which did not have the splendor, although it had a greater longevity, it did not have the splendor of the hanging gardens of Babylon and the terrifying effect of Nebuchadnezzar as king. Then after that came a kingdom of bronze, Bronze Age. The chief kingdom within the Bronze Age was the Greeks, the kingdom of the Greeks. After the kingdom of the Greeks arose the iron might of the Caesars, with weapons of iron. Now, this kingdom was a city-state that spread out and ruled most of the known world. Its weakness was it was built with slave labor and it enslaved the nations of the earth. So following Alexander's kingdom and the long run of the Bronze Age of Greece or the the kingdom of Greece typified by the, uh, the metal bronze came the iron might of the Caesars but the weakness of clay, the weakness of ceramic because it relied upon slavery, enforced enslavement of people and it was bound to collapse on the very basis of having enslaved the majority of its subjects. Now, that's historical and useful but the point that is most beneficial to us is Verse, two, verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2. There he says, identifying when the kingdom of heaven would make its appearance among and within the domains of men. And here is what he said in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Can you believe these words are actually in the Scriptures? In the days of these kings, iron and clay, and the mixture of iron and clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. See, this is the eternal kingdom. 
This is not one of human construction, human maintenance, or depending on human authority or power for its sustenance. It shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Meaning, the, the subjects of this kingdom will not be just whoever. They'll have to come and be citizens of this kingdom by a particular process, because this will be, you see, a holy people. In the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, five chapters after this, he defines the people to whom this kingdom is left as the saints. Now this kingdom, this kingdom shall break in pieces and consume all the other kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And now part of the vision was a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands that was hurled at the foot of this great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and it shattered the image and this was the interpretation. And then the stone grew and filled the dimensions of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king which will come to pass after this. This is certain and its interpretation is sure. So the kingdom of heaven will smash every other kingdom and it will stand forever because in the second psalm the prophecy is that God gave to Christ all the kingdoms of the earth for His inheritance. So He's free to select a people out of every tribe, nation, language or kingdom. This is the language you see of the book of Revelation that speaks of the adulation of Christ when He's brought forth with great pomp and circumstance and all of heaven began to praise Him and the song, the new song that was sung to Him was that He was worthy to be praised because He received men from every tribe, tongue, language and nation and formed them into a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for God's possession. Prophesied early here in Daniel. Now in Daniel chapter 7, yet another reference is brought forth. And this is about how these kingdoms and the predatory nature of these kingdoms rivaled the kingdom of heaven from this point on in the vision of Daniel up until the conclusion of the age. So it's not a reference to the preceding kingdoms, it's a reference to the succeeding kingdoms. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this is Daniel's vision. Here Daniel said, He had a dream and visions entered his head and he wrote it down. 
And he said, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. This could either, in the natural, this would be a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, but in the spirit, it was talking about a thing that arises out of the sea of humanity. Uh, A sea is often the word referencing people and a cloud is also uh, a metaphor referencing people, like a great cloud of witnesses or the sea of humanity. And he said, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. I'll skip over, just touching on them. The first one was uh, like a lion uh, with the wings of an eagle. The second was like a bear with three ribs in its mouth. The third was like a leopard that had four wings like a bird. And then after this, he said, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth and it was devouring and breaking into pieces and trampling the residue with his feet. So he was trampling down the whole earth. He describes it further as having ten horns and uh, there was another horn, a little one that came up dispossessing three other horns and began to speak blasphemously. I'm skipping over. Then he said, I watched as thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated and describes the Ancient of Days and uh, the court was set and the books were opened. So this beast was subject to judgment and the beast was speaking uh, ponderous things. And then he said, I watched in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. You remember when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives? It was said, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Just a little bit of connectedness there. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came before the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So in the midst of the terrifying rampaging, the Son of Man was granted a kingdom. Daniel was very concerned about these visions that he saw and he was particularly concerned about that dreadful beast, the fourth one. And he was told the following, the four beasts shall be the fourth beast is or shall be a fourth kingdom that will rise upon the earth which will be different from all other kingdoms so what are the four four beasts the four beasts are four iterations 
of the same kingdom. The last of the fourth is the culmination of the predatory nature of all of its predecessors and its destiny was to wage war against the beast, against the kingdom of God. The one like the Ancient of Days, or the one like the Son of Man who came before the Ancient of Days, he was given a kingdom at a particular point in time, but this fourth kingdom begins to oppose that kingdom which the Son of Man was given. Now, if you skip forward in time to the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, you will see these kingdoms again. In Revelation 13, the following is said, I'm laying up this so we can get to it in subsequent chapters, in subsequent uh, presentations. In Revelation 13, you will observe a very interesting thing. Dan, uh, now, this is centuries after Daniel, at least six centuries later. John is writing and he said, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a great beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Now interestingly, he said, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, had feet like a bear, had the mouth of a lion. So he reverses the order of Daniel's vision in chapter 7. Daniel saw a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then this terrifying beast. John sees a leopard, a bear, a, a bear, a lion, and then the terrifying beast. So, what are we to make of that? Well, one is looking prospectively into history and sees the advance of these three and finally fourth kingdom in the fashion of a lion, a bear, a leopard, and this terrifying, a leopard a bear, a lion, and this terrifying kingdom. Looking retrospectively into history from John's viewpoint, looking back into history, three of these other kingdoms have already come. The one closest to him was the, uh, the lion, was a leopard. The one next back from him was the bear, and the fourth one was the lion. So, they all collapse into one, but their goal is still the same, to oppose the saints. Now in the next broadcast, I want to update this to the prophecies of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he speaks of the end of the age. For there you will see what it looks like, what these kingdoms look like, the conflict in the world, and the conflict with the saints. So we'll pursue that to greater understanding. I'm leading up to what today we're observing in terms of pestilences and potential economic collapse and all these things, but you have to see the history because it's not anything new 
and the outcome is sure.